0: Good to be back. Thank you again to uh, everybody who was praying for me while I was sick. I, I, had, um, I was actually sick for a couple of weeks. I had like, like flu-like symptoms and then that kind of uh, transitioned into pneumonia. So um, I was really under the weather for a couple of weeks. But I will tell you, uh, one of the benefits of this uh, coronavirus thing is that if you are a person of Asian descent and you are sick and you have a cough, they basically treat you like a celebrity everywhere you go. You like walk into a, into a doctor's office and everybody's like hushed and they're whispering and they're looking at you and they're they're talking about you. Literally, the 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 nurses are like, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Brian Z, uh, can you come? Uh, we have a special room for you to wait in." Um, so uh, you definitely get the first class treatment as an Asian American with a cough during this time. But uh, happy to say that I'm better. That I don't think that I had the coronavirus, but. I'm back, I'm feeling better, feeling energized, and uh, really happy to be able to pick up this, uh, what was supposed to be the second week of this two-week series about our five-year vision. Obviously last week I couldn't be here, so Pastor Tua came in and, uh, you know, kind of jumped back into the Mark series, but today we're going to kind of finish up with that second week of our two-week sermon series about our five-year vision, where we are going for the next five years in our church and so there are a lot of things changing. If you look around, some of the, some of the signage has changed and uh, the website has changed. But some things aren't changing. And one of the things, we talked about this before, that isn't changing is our mission statement. The reason why we exist, the reason why we do what we do, the mission statement remains the same. We exist to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who know they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. That's still the mission, that's still what calls us to do everything that we do as a church ministry. We still believe that it's so important for you to understand that you are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. Not anything that you did, not anything you did could earn it, could merit it, but because of what Christ did for you on the cross, you are now the beloved of God. Like in 1 John 3, 1, how it says, how great is the love that the Lord has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. It doesn't have anything to do about what you did or what you earned or what you merited or what you deserved. It has nothing to do with about you and your righteousness, but it's all about the way that God loved you and lavished love upon you, love upon you that you can be now called the children of God. And it's super important to understand that as part of our identity. You're the beloved of God because of Christ alone. But what we're really focusing on in the five-year vision for our church is we're trying to focus on that first part of the statement, to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples, right? That it's, it's great and it's powerful and it's super important to know that you are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. But knowing that in your head is not all of it, that you actually have to live a transformed, spirit-filled life. That is what God is calling you to. That is the mission that he has for your life. We sum up, if you see on the website, our five-year vision in this statement, helping people to know God and discover their mission. So the first part, we talked about it um, two weeks ago. We talked about um, helping people to know God. And we talked about spiritual discipline and this idea of what you do matters. What you do matters. A lot of times, because we get so wrapped up in these gospel-centered churches about your identity about the gospel, the good news, about the fact that you can't do anything to earn your salvation, we get so focused on that, that we, 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 we so f- fear being labeled as legalistic that we stop talking about what you do. And we pretend like what you do doesn't matter. We get this idea that, yeah, what you love should affect what you do. And that's true, but we forget the reciprocal part that says what you do affects what you love love. What you do affects what you love. And so spiritual disciplines are super important. Spending time in the Word, praying, getting together with other believers and fellowshipping, all those things are really important things because what you do affects what you love. But we must not make the mistake that spiritual disciplines are the end goal of transformation, that we must understand that they are a means to an end. Transformation, the transformation that we're talking about is not just self-improvement so that you can read the Bible a little bit more, you spend a little bit more time in prayer. It's not about improving yourself so that you're a more religious person. You see, because there's a difference between improvement and transformation, it's a difference between improvement and transformation because the world, it tells you that the key to life is improvement. All you have to do is make yourself a little better. You just need to read a couple more books and to, uh, to improve your knowledge. You just have to come up with a plan. You just have to try harder and you can improve yourself. But here's the problem with this idea of improvement. I was thinking about it, and um, maybe you guys are too young, or maybe you've seen it on TV, but there was this movie that came out, I think, in 1999. Raise your hand if you were not even... Some of you guys weren't even born in 1999, right? Very, very young, a couple of you. But there's this movie called She's All That. Can you raise your hand? Have you ever watched this movie? She's All That, a couple of you guys. So the idea about this movie is that there's there's this high school hunk, he's like the homecoming king, he's like captain of the soccer team, and he's played by Freddie Prince Jr. And he gets into this bet, I think actually with the late, great Paul Walker, about that he's so popular and he's so influential in the school that he can take any woman, any girl, no matter how nerdy, no matter how unattractive, no matter how unappealing, and just by association with him, him he can transform her so much so that she will become the homecoming queen or the prom queen or whatever right and so it's this whole idea about so of course Paul Walker goes and picks the nerdiest girl he can find and he's like that's the one you have to transform that girl into somebody that people would say that's the prom queen but if you can show the next photo that's her before and that's her after the transformation and the thing that you have to realize is that she's already pretty attractive. <laughs> right? She's no ugly duckling there. Like, like literally, she's just an attractive woman who wears glasses and wears a funny costume for work. And this so-called transformation is literally just taking off the glasses and putting on a dress and now she's the prom queen there's no transformation that really took place here, but it's really just an act of, a small act of improvement. And it's not just movies from before you were born, but I've been watching this Netflix show called Love is Blind. I know a lot of people in our church have been watching it. And it's this reality show. And they say, you know what, here's this grand experiment. We're going to take these people who have not been able to find true love. Right? Love has eluded them. And we're going to concoct this grand experiment where these people will all just meet other single people and they'll just talk. Like they, they sit in these pods so they can never see them. And the grand experiment is if you remove physical attraction, if you remove everything about your race, your ethnicity, all that stuff, just by talking, can you, fill, can you form a deep enough bond that you can actually fall in love with somebody? That's their grand experiment. And people actually propose to one another on this show before they've even seen the other person. So this is the grand experiment that has so many of us watching this TV show. But the thing is, the thing is, the catch is, everybody on this show is somewhat attractive. There's no real ugly ducklings in this show. It's like, okay, we're going to see if love is truly blind, but we're going to do it with all people who are all somewhat attractive. And it's really the same idea. See, the world promises you that if you're looking for love and acceptance and validation, that you can find in this world if you are willing to try something new, if you work harder, if you improve yourself. But this is the underlying assumption, is that you're kind of hot already, is that you're almost there. That you're just one small step away from being the type of person that the world will love and accept and value. But the question is what if you aren't that close? What if you aren't that hot or attractive? What if there's things that you've done in your lives, or there's things that you that that there's things about you that would make you hard or to love and accept? What if you need something more than just a little bit of improvement in your life? Well then it's good news for you that the Bible doesn't talk about self improvement, it talks about transformation. And that's what we're talking about today. Transformation in the Bible, right? we, We talked about it two weeks ago. The word that the Bible used for transformation is the same word for metamorphosis, like a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly that your very nature has been changed. I didn't bring it up two weeks ago, but the same word for metamorphosis is the same word for transfiguration. For those of you guys who... Are, uh, who, who know the transfiguration is, is, is a moment in Christ's earthly ministry where he is transformed, right? Because when Jesus came to this earth, right, you look at all the paintings and like the people on Love is Blind, most artists depict Jesus as being kind of good-looking, kind of hot. But biblically, that's inaccurate. The book of Isaiah says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should despise him, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's one that you would hide your face from. He was despised and, he, we, and we esteemed him not. I'm saying Jesus was not a good-looking guy. He was not impressive. The Jesus, the son of God, came into this world. He was born in a manger. He was, came in the most humble form possible. But for one moment, one moment, a couple of disciples, at this moment that we call the transfiguration, they were able to see Jesus standing before them with this ineffable, this indescribable manifestation of light and glory. That they could see Jesus, not for his earthly, humble form, but for all his radiance and glory and beauty. And they got to see it. And that change from ordinary, unattractive Jesus to glorious, beautiful Jesus, that word for transfiguration is the same word that the Bible uses for the transformation that should be taking place in our lives. It's not talking about self-improvement. We're not talking about improving ourselves into people who swear a little bit less or sleep around a little bit less than some of our friends. We're talking about a powerful transformation that happens. And it talks about in these earlier verses that we went over two weeks ago. That in verse 13 it says that we will attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of what? The fullness of Christ. Verse 15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Verse 16 says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the transformation that we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual transformation that leaves you looking and loving people like Jesus himself. one could argue that this is what the book of Ephesians is really about, right? This idea that the Spirit of God is using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts and to transform our lives. You look at the structure of the book, uh, chapters 1 through 3, it's all about the beauty of the gospel, gospel, gospel. Chapter 4 is about how the gospel should transform us and change us. And then chapters five and six is kind of how the gospel transforms us in our specific roles or vocations where Paul starts talking about work and family and et cetera. So when we talk about the mission in our lives, when we talk about things like calling, everybody wants to kind of talk about it in in terms of like specific vocation. Should I become a missionary? What job should I take? But we have to first understand the more fundamental calling to us as believers and that is to be transformed into Christ-likeness. So we're talking about understanding our mission in a broader sense. Do you understand, do you know God's mission or plan for you? Do you feel like there's purpose and power in your life? Do you feel inspired in your day-to-day life? Do you recognize how God is working in your life? I brought it up at the uh, members retreat, but for some of you who weren't there, you know, my brother Charlie, we've been in a small group together for I don't know, 50 years or something. We've been in Smulder together for a long time. And every now and then, he'll bring up this this challenge that God, uh, this challenging question that God puts in his life, and it's this. If God wasn't part of my life, would anybody be able to tell? Besides the fact that I go to church and besides the fact that I say I believe in Jesus, if God really ceased to exist in my life, would my life really change all that much? I think that's a question that we should all ask ourselves when we're talking about transformation. Are your hopes, dreams, fears, insecurities all that much different than your non-Christian friends? I mean, don't we worry about the same things? Right? We all worry about coronavirus. Right? I've been reading these stories about how in Hong Kong there's like a shortage of toilet paper, so they are actually they have armed, robber, armed robberies of toilet paper delivery trucks. And we can laugh about that, and we think that's absurd, but honestly, if someone says there's a shortage of toilet paper now, wouldn't you worry and go and stock up in the same way? Don't we spend a lot of time, of our time pursuing the same things? Jobs, financial security, romantic love, social acceptance. You know, two weeks ago I talked about this thing that you can do on your iPhone where you can, in the settings, you can go into battery and you can see exactly how much battery life is spent on the different apps in your phone. And it's a good way to see how you're actually using your time. But if you did this and you actually analyze how you spend your time on your iPhone, does the breakdown of how you spend your time differ than that of any non-believer? If you lost your job, if your romantic partner left you, if someone uh, you know or you yourself got seriously sick, how would you handle it? Would it be that much different than somebody who doesn't know God? I'm not asking if you have church friends that you could go and share prayer requests and they could pray for you and encourage you and you might feel better about it. I'm not saying do you have Christian community that helps you along that might make it more tenable for you to deal with these tragedies in life than somebody who doesn't have that community. What I'm asking you is when your dreams are shattered and when your heart is in pieces, have you been transformed by God so much that people would look at you and see Jesus in you? That's the transformation that we're talking about. That's what today's passage is talking about. You can put up the passage from today. Paul starts by saying this, Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's saying you can't continue to live lives like non-believers. There has to be a difference. And you cannot continue to live in the futility of, their, of your minds. He's like, if you're a believer, you should not be living an uninspired life. You should not just be getting by. You should not just be surviving. You shouldn't be thinking to yourself, is there even a point? You should be wondering if there's purpose or meaning. And you should be asking if your life is futile. Paul continues they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Do you ever feel like God isn't active in your life? Do you ever feel like you're disconnected from him? Do you ever feel like your prayers just hit the ceiling? Has it been so long since you've had an encounter with God that your heart is hard? So worst, singing worship songs feel wrong or forced because you don't really feel like you believe what you're singing anymore. Is coming to church just something that you do, a routine that you just keep? Paul continues, They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Have you today grown so tired and cynical and even callous? You just give in to sin and temptation at this point. Have you come to accept sin in your life because you don't really believe that you have the power to change? I think a lot of us can relate to that way of living, but this is what Paul continues saying. He said, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed, to be changed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what Paul is saying here is that if you are in Christ if you are in Christ, if you've heard the gospel, and if you've taught it and you believe it in your heart, then this is the truth. You have the power to put off your old self, all the corruption and all the deceitful desires, and you have the power to put on a new self. Not just a self-improvement change of clothes, but a likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The question is then, how does this transformation happen? How do we put on this new self? And to answer that, we're going to kind of jump around Ephesians a little bit and, and pick out a few verses that would deal with this calling to be transformed. And so today's big idea is that only when we surrender to the lordship of Christ will we experience the power of God in our lives. Only when we surrender to the lordship of Christ will we experience his power in our lives. So the first question for us today is, are we willing to surrender to the lordship of Christ? Chapter four, verse one, Paul starts this section by saying this, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the what? The calling to which you have been Called. He's saying you've been called to this calling and I'm urging you as a prisoner of the, lo- of, the, of the Lord. Now, just to be clear, Paul is a Roman prisoner at this time. He's in a Roman jail. He's tied up. He's in chains. But he doesn't say I'm a Roman prisoner. He's not saying defining himself by the way that the world is making him suffer. He's saying that he is the Lord's prisoner Because he's accepted the call to surrender everything and to suffer if it means to give Christ lordship over his life. It's a call to surrender. I I love the fact that you know Pastor Otua came and preached from Mark 10. Uh, last week, because I think it fits in with this sermon a lot, so we're going to be referencing a lot. But if you remember this story that uh, Pastor Otua taught from was this, this, this story about the rich young ruler, right? And this guy, this really impressive, accomplished guy comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the dude's like, which one's? Jesus gives him a list. He's like, you shall not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, uh, you should not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man's feeling pretty good about himself. He says, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus answers in this, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And it kind of has a sad ending because when the young man heard this, he went away because he had great wealth and he just couldn't give what Jesus asked. And my question then is, why did Jesus ask this guy to sell his possessions and give it to the poor? Was he really after this man's Wealth Was Jesus thinking, hey, man, I'm, I'm actually kind of stuck because there's all these poor people around and I don't have the means to help them, so it would be really great if you could just uh, sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor because that would really help my mission here on earth? Was Jesus really saying, let's make a deal, just increase your charitable giving and then you will get eternal life? The answer is obviously No. There's nothing that this rich young ruler or any of us can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing that you can give, no offering that you can bring, no sacrifices that you can make that would ever earn your salvation. So the question still remains, why did Jesus ask this rich young ruler this question? And I think it's because he wanted this man to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Because we're like this man in a lot of ways, because a lot of us, many of us, at some point, we realize that we want God to be part of our lives. We recognize there's some value to, have, to having to, to, to have God be a part of our lives. We, we need him in our families. We need him because things in life are overwhelming us. We, we need him when life uh, is leaving us feeling overmatched. So we come to God and we basically say the same thing. How much do I have to do? Or what do I have to do to get right with you? We ask questions like, how much do I have to give you? How much do I have to go to church? Well, what commandments do I have to keep and how well do I have to keep them? But those, I think, are just surface-level questions, the real underlying question that we're asking is how much control do I get to keep over my own life? What we're really saying is I want what God has to offer me as long as it doesn't mess with my plans or interfere with my dreams or cost me too much or inconvenience me. I want what God has to offer me as long as I don't have to surrender to him. Well, this is the thing, you can't, have your cake and eat it too with God. You can't enjoy a relationship with God and retain lordship over your life. It's like, um, you know, Copernicus, right? You guys know, you guys know who Copernicus is? Or like before Copernicus came around, most people thought that the universe revolved around the earth. They thought the earth was the center of the universe. I and mean, then Copernicus came along, and yeah, you know, there's like, so there was some tension, and people didn't immediately go uh, accept his, his, his way of thinking. But eventually, most of us now believe that the sun is the center of the universe, right? There was a change there. But you know what isn't a popular opinion? Not a lot of people believe that both the earth and the sun are the center of the universe. I hope you don't believe that because there can only be one center of the universe and you kind of have to choose. But that's kind of what we do, right, in a way. We, people ask, who has lordship over your life? You are God. And we're like, um, both. Both. God wants you to surrender to his lordship over your life. That's what happened to the rich young ruler. He's thinking there and saying, what must I do to get eternal life? And God's saying, you must do this, this, and this, and this. He's like, I did those things. He's like, well, then you have to do this thing. And he asks him something that's really hard for him to give, something that's really hard for him to surrender You have to give him control. You can't hold anything back. You have to give him lordship over your life, and the man could not do it, so he walked away. But a lot of us, if we're honest, we hear things like you have to surrender to the lordship of God over your life. You have to give him control. You have to let go of the reins. You have to give him everything, and instead of walking away like the rich young ruler, we just kind of hang around and pretend like we can just stay in this middle ground. Who has lordship of your life? You or God? And we're like, um, both, kind of? So the question, I think, then becomes, why should we surrender to the lordship of Christ? And there's a lot of reasons I could give you. I could tell you God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of you and me, and the creator has authority over creation. And there's a lot of other reasons I could give you like that, but I'll tell you one for today. We should surrender to the lordship of Christ because he surrendered for us first. You see, God being all-powerful and almighty, he could have forced us into submission. He could have forced us into surrender. God being all-powerful, there were a lot of ways that he could have compelled us to surrender to him, but he didn't choose to bully us and he didn't choose to force us. God loved us so much that he chose the path that sent his son Jesus into this world in order to surrender for our behalf on the cross. Jesus surrendered on the cross. He laid down his rights. He laid down his entitlement. He didn't hold anything back. When Jesus went to the cross, he laid it all down for us so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, so that our relationship with God could be restored. Jesus surrendered all so that we could be given his righteousness. It was given to us as a gift so that nothing we can do can earn or merit our standing before God. And the question then is, to a God who would send his son to surrender for your good, how do you respond to a God like that? And the right response is to to surrender in return. That's the right response whenever somebody surrenders. You think about it in warfare, right? Like we always think about the the, the guys who are waving the white flags. Those are the people who are surrendering. But there has to be a mutual surrender. When those guys who are fighting you wave that white flag, you have to die to yourself to accept that surrender. That the person accepting the surrender is surrendering to. You're saying, I'm surrendering. I'm giving up my right to hurt you. I'm giving up my right to inflict pain on you. I'm giving up my right to kill you. I'm saying, no, I'm laying all those down because you surrendered. And in response, I will surrender those things that I might feel entitled to you. The same thing is with marriage. Marriage. You can call it mutual submission, but really what we're talking about is mutual surrender. If you were at a wedding and one person is like, everything that I am and everything that, I don't remember, everything that I am and everything that I have is yours. Something like that, right? And the other person was like, that's great. I'm going to keep my checking account to myself though. You'd be like, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. That's unbalanced. That's unfair. If one person is saying, everything that I have is yours, and the other person's like, great, I'll accept that, but you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing. You'd be like, that's not love. For true peace, for true reconciliation, for true love to exist, there's always this requirement of mutual surrender. And as we surrender to the Lordship of Christ, we surrender to a Savior who surrendered for us first. That's the call for us is to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And the second question, the second point I have for us today is do we realize that the power, do we realize the power that's already at work within us? Do we realize the power that is already at work within us? I pull this from Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19, but it said, Paul writes this having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What he's saying is that there is a, if you are in Christ, there is a power, we call it the Holy Spirit, that exists in you, that dwells in you, and that can and will transform you. And that power goes hand in hand with surrendering to the lordship of Christ. It's all throughout the Bible. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. And he's saying there's life after surrender, there's life after death, there's resurrection power in our faith. That if you're just trying to retain lordship over your life, you will not experience his power. But if you surrender that power and give lordship to Christ, then you will experience life and power. In Philippians 3, you know, I talked this is one of my favorite verses, but Paul writes. But whatever, I, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he had just, just got done talking about all these accomplishments, all these things that he has bragging rights about, my family, my education, my success, my achievements. He's like, I surrender all of it. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Right? I surrender it all. I lay it all down. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's the power part that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Everybody loves that part. Everybody talks, people love talking about that part of Scripture, that we could know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? But then he continues, And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection for the dead. Any means possible. Whether it means being shipwrecked, whether it means being stoned, whether it means being rejected by not only Gentiles, but believers. He's saying, I'll do anything. I will surrender it all so that I can experience this power of Christ, this resurrection power of Christ in my life. You've got to surrender first. And so I don't think this is anything new for a lot of us. I think these Bible passages are kind of famous. So the question then is, if the relationship between surrendering to the lordship of Christ and experiencing his power in our lives is so clear biblically, why do we still resist surrendering? Why do we still resist surrendering? Back back to the rich young ruler. He calls him good teacher, and Jesus is like, why do you call me good? Do you really think I'm good, or are you just saying that? I think one of the reasons why we struggle to surrender to the lordship of Christ is because we aren't really sure if he's that good. I talked about it before, but my dad uh, used to play this game with me like when he would come home from business trips. I think they would give him stipends, so sometimes he would have like a lot of cash on him. And he would always do this thing, he's like, I'll trade you what's in your wallet for, uh, and then you can pick one of my pockets my left or right pocket, and I'll trade you. Whatever is in that pocket for whatever is in your wallet, you get to trade, and you have to live with it. And so I, you know, I didn't have much money, but, you know, to a kid, a couple dollars is a lot. It's all that you have. And I would sit there, and it was just, I think my dad, in a sick way, really enjoyed it, but I would just be like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? One pocket might have a lot of money in it, the other pocket might have nothing, and I sat there in anguish because I was like, do I, do, I, do I take him up on it or do I not? And I think in some ways, that's the way that we actually treat God. When he asks us to surrender, when he asks us to give him everything, when, we ask him, when he asks us to give up control in our dreams and our hopes and aspirations for this life, we look at him and we're like, are you really good? Is this really going to work out well for me? be so much easier for me to do this if I knew that both of your pockets had good things for me? If I had perfect information? But then that wouldn't be surrendering, would it? Because if you look at uh, what it looks like to surrender to God and experience the power in your life in the Bible, it it never works out that the people being asked to surrender have perfect information. (coughs) think back to Abraham, right? God basically comes to Abraham and says, leave everything behind, all your family, all your possessions, whatever, everything that you know, and go to a new land. And Abraham's like, okay, God, what land is it? And God basically says, don't worry, I'll I'll show you later. And later, God goes to Abraham and he says, you know what, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham's like, how am I going to do it, Lord? I'm old. My wife, Sarah, like we've been trying and it just isn't working. How is, it going to, how is that going to happen? And you know what God says? Don't worry. I'll show you later. And then God gives Abraham this son and he comes to Abraham and he says, take your son up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham basically says to him, Why are you asking this of me, O Lord? And God basically says, What? Don't worry. I'll show you later. And what God is asking at that moment of surrender is, Do you trust me? Will you follow me? Do you believe that I'm asking you to surrender because I want you to miss out on happiness and joy? Or do you believe that I have come so that you could have life and have it to the full? Do you believe that I have come so you could have an abundant, a better life? Do you believe that I am good? I'll cheat and pull up a calling verse from another of Paul's epistles, but Romans 4:17 says this: "The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not." The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Do you believe this about our God? That God, our God gives life to the dead and creates something from nothing. That when he speaks to Abraham, even though he doesn't tell him all the details, even though he doesn't let Abraham figure everything out, when he speaks to Abraham, it's as good as done. That he changed Abram's name to Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude, while Sarah was still childless. That God spoke of Abraham's descendants when as yet there were none. That God truly has the ability to speak of impossible things and in the speaking, just in the speaking, make them possible. You believe that about our God because if you do and you're here today and you think to yourself and you're pessimistic and you're calloused and you think that I cannot change, if you're here today and you're feeling far from God, if you're here today, you feel powerless and hopeless, if your heart feels dry and old, then I want you to know that there is a God that lives to give life to the dead and to call into being things that were not. The word of God proclaims that if you are in Christ, that there's a power that resides in you that created the foundations of the world. The same power that breathed life into completely dead, dry bones. The power that healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. The power that gives people the freedom to dream again. The same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in you, ready to transform you into Christ-likeness. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, all you have to do is ask. That's the power of God that the Word of God says dwells in you. It made me think there's this book called uh, Peak Performance. And it tells all these stories about people doing these crazy, amazing things. And in the 70s, there's this woman named Laura Schultz who was 63 years old at the time. And um, what happened was her, her grandson got trapped underneath the back end of a Buick, and she lifted it off of him. Right, no, no, no fooling, she actually did it. So the author of this book tried to get an interview with her, but she refused because she was unwilling to talk about what had happened. So after much uh, pursuing and convincing, she finally told him that she didn't like to think about that miracle because of this. If I was able to do this when I don't, didn't think that I could, what does that say about the rest of my life? Have I wasted it? And so when we look at passages in the Bible, in the Word of God, that tell us that we have this power to trans, be transformed, that, we don't, that that it resides in us, and what I want for you guys as your pastor, that's what I want for you. I don't want you to waste the power that is in your life. I don't want you to live another day without purpose or meaning or inspiration or a sense of mission. I want you to live a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want you to live a life that is marked by being transformed into someone who loves like Jesus. Ultimately, I think that's the mission for your life is to live empowered by the Holy Spirit. In a practical application, because how do you do that? It's a lot. Well, I mean, part of the good news is transformation, metamorphosis, takes time. Right? Caterpillars don't immediately become butterflies. It's a process. Right? Change doesn't happen immediately. But at the same time, practically speaking, again, what you do, do matters what you do matters and this idea of trying versus training that this transformation might look like something that's so big that you can't even wrap your head around it but just like running a marathon it's about taking those small steps and training to become and to be transformed into the type of person who can do incredible things and so our practical application for this, for us, is this. Last Wednesday, a lot of you guys looked around. Maybe you saw them around the city. A lot of people walked around with those crosses put on their head by ashes and ashes, and it marked the season of Lent. And historically, traditionally, this is a time that people go through some form of fasting, that they surrender something. And so I would ask you guys, if you're in a small group, do it in your small group time, in your community group time this week. Or if not, talk to other believers that you know. But actually think about surrendering something for God during this Lent season. And it can be anything. For some people, it'll be giving up social media. For other people, it'll be restricting their diets, giving up meat or giving up, sugar or chocolate or whatever. I've heard some people, they go into the season by deciding that they're all going to wear the same clothes, like three sets of clothes, right? and just wear those clothes over and over again and wash them and wear them, wash them and wear them. The washing part is important. But, but this idea that they're trying to break from this materialistic mindset that they have that they need a closet full of clothes, and they're trying to sacrifice and surrender so that they can so they can ask God to work in their lives, so that they can experience God. What I'm asking you guys to do in your community groups or in whatever body of believers that you find yourself in is to actually experiment and to dream, to think about different ways that you can surrender things in your life so that you could experience more of the power of God in your life. And when I mean experiment, I mean experiment because some things will not work for you. Right? Right? To be honest, the Daniel fast never worked for me because I ended up, there's so many rules that I ended up thinking more about food than I did before, right? And so for you guys, some of you guys will give up social media. You'll be like, I didn't get any closer to God from doing that and that's fine. That's why you're just trying these things out but sometimes you'll find something that actually works in your life. And you're like, you know what? I surrendered that small thing and I actually felt closer to God. I actually felt more of His power and His presence in my life. And that's why we have, that's one of the reasons why we come together and why the gift of church community is so powerful, it's because we can do these things together. So, practically, just talk about it and try it out, try something new. But this is the key. You're not saying, I'm giving this up. Can I now inherit eternal life? You're not saying, I'm giving this thing up. God, does it impress you? You're not saying, does this earn me brownie points with God? But instead, you're saying, I've already inherited eternal life because of what Christ accomplished for me on the cross, but I'm giving this up and surrendering this because I want your lordship in my life. You've surrendered for me. So I'm going to give this up in a way that I am surrendering to you. And in closing, I just want to have one moment of just real talk. Is that, you know what, we've been through a lot in this season of our church with the leadership transition and all of that. And it's been challenging and it's been hard and I get it. And I've gone around and I've talked to different community groups. I've talked to different people in our church. And honestly, I've asked people why they've stayed at our church. And the one most consistent answer that I've received was this, because of the community, because we have friends here, because these relationships are important to us, that was enough to keep us here. And I thank God for those relationships. I thank God for the relationships that you have in this community. I thank God for the relationships that I have in this community. And I thank God that you're still here and you're still a part of this church community. I want to make that clear before I say what's next. Because I'm going to say this. I also want to say that my hope and dream for our church is that that answer will change. Well, I'm thankful for those relationships. I think they're a blessing from God. My hope and dream is that in the future, if someone asks you why you stuck around or why you're part of this church, your first answer won't be because of community. But you'll say it's because I've been transformed here, because I'm growing in understanding what it means to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Because I'm experiencing the power of God, and I'm becoming a person who is more like Jesus at this church. I hope you tell people it's because I'm experienced transformation into a spirit-filled disciple at Church of the Beloved. Let's pray.